Hello. Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and I could not let October slip by without devoting another episode of ITG to that physician of phenomenology, the scholar of skepticism, the Hippocrates of ha-ha, Dr. Terence Thirteen, the Ghostbreaker. The doubting Thomas of the DCU, Dr. Thirteen has long been a favorite character of mine from the supernatural side of DC Comics. Dr. Thirteen debuted during the waning days of the Golden Age and headlined the last nine issues of Star Spangled Comics, a book he shared with the excellent Tomahawk and Captain Compass features, plus Robin the Boy Wonder. But then Dr. Thirteen languished in limbo for over a decade before being brought in as a foil to the Phantom Stranger during that character's Bronze Age run. Dr. Thirteen often appeared foolish during his time in The Phantom Stranger as he continually refused to accept the very obvious supernatural occurrences that happened around him uh, in each issue. But before dedicating his life to disproving every little unexplained action of The Phantom Stranger in those old star-spangled comic stories... Dr. Thirteen was a pretty cool customer. I like to imagine those early Dr. Thirteen adventures as being something like if Bruce Wayne operated Mystery Incorporated, but with no dog, no ascot, no shaggy, no Velma, and with Terry's fiancée Marie, I guess, playing the part of Daphne. Terrence, with Marie by his side, spent each of his original eight-page adventures debunking all manner of strange phenomena from giant humanoid flowers that ended up being a fancily made-up gang of extortionists to the eerie voice of his father from beyond the grave that started Terence on his crusade. That ended up being a record on a turntable behind the grandfather clock. Of course it was. The past couple of years, I have taken a look back at a single Dr. Thirteen solo adventure, but this year, because Terry is the doctor so nice, I got a recap and comment twice. I've decided to cover two stories, one each from Star Spangled Comics numbers 123 and 124, cover dated December 1951 and January 1952, respectively. The cover feature for issue number 123 is the Doctor 13 story, The Dolls of Doom. Creator credits for these stories are pretty scarce, but the name most closely associated with this run is artist Leonard Starr, and the work both on the interiors of each story and the covers looks enough like Leonard Starr's work for me to go along with that attribution. On the cover of 123, Dr. Thirteen and Marie confront an angry carrot top, eyes bulging, who's yelling, 
And now, Dr. Thirteen, when I pierce this wax image of you, you will die like all the others. And sure enough, this guy is holding a small statuette of Terence, ready to poke a long pin into the wax figure's kneecap. So this story promises some thrills, some chills, and maybe a little voodoo, so why don't we dig in? Dolls of Doom begins with the Doctor and Marie in Hollywood, of all places. Thirteen is in town to make some films about his work. One evening, they are invited to a party at the palatial estate of movie mogul Lyman Maples. The estate is named Zandu, calling Charles Foster Kane. And Terry and Marie arrive to quite a scene. A crowd is gathered at the swimming pool in which floats the body of movie star Velma Reed. A victim apparently not of drowning, but of a gunshot wound to the chest. The police on the scene think this is an ordinary murder case. This claims party host Lyman Maples, though I question just how many murders Maples has experienced, where any one of them could be called ordinary and after greeting dr 13 maples wants to show the doctor something privately something related to this murder for some reason favoring to confide in the famous debunker before consulting the authorities maples shows 13 something a wax figure of velma reed that's been pierced through the heart in the exact spot ms reed had been shot but stranger still, it was found in her luggage, which had just arrived after the murder. Now, I don't think I'm giving anything away here when I question the actions of Mr. Maples. He's accustomed to ordinary murder on his property. He's obviously rifled through a dead woman's luggage. And he's consulting not with the proper authorities, but with a playboy private investigator. Uh... These Hollywood types, I don't know. Dr. Thirteen, of course, doubts a supernatural connection between the maimed doll and the murdered starlet, supposing the doll was sent to Ms. Reed by the killer as a warning, and that the killer, with incredible aim, matched the doll's wound with a bullet. Just then, however, a real cop interrupts Maples and Thirteen with some updated information. A wanted thief has just been caught nearby and has confessed to shooting Velma Reed when he was caught stealing jewels from her room. The thief tried hiding the body but was spooked by some noise and dumped her in the pool. Significantly, though, the thief had no knowledge of the figurine, which blows Terry's theory out of the water. Racking his brain a few days later, Dr. Thirteen, along with Marie, happens to pass by a shop that sells miniature wax figures of famous movie stars. They drop in and meet the proprietor-slash-sculptor Amos Montola, who confirms that he had sculpted a miniature Velma Reed, but it had been purchased many months ago. Back at their hotel, Dr. Thirteen receives a long-distance phone call from the recent widow of a Senator Tolles in Washington. She must see him immediately. Something about voodoo. 
Terry takes, I'm guessing, the very next plane to Washington, where Mrs. Tolles recounts her husband's recent accident. Returning from abroad, the senator was forced to jump from a damaged plane. Senator's parachute malfunctioned, and the politician ended up gruesomely impaled by a tree branch right through the neck. What caused Mrs. Tolles to contact Dr. Thirteen, however, was the little wax figure of Senator Tolles that had found its way into their possession. The doll had a pin through the neck. Returning to L.A., Terry discovers that the newspapers are already tying together the strange deaths of Velma Reed and Senator Tolles. They're calling it voodoo. Well, this just cannot stand in Dr. Thirteen's eyes. So he recommits to the case and decides to drop in one more time with Amos Montola's waxworks. He and Marie catch Montola sculpting a new figure, and Montola confirms two things. Number one, he was commissioned for a Senator Tolles doll recently, though it was picked up weeks ago. And number two, each of his creations is unique, claiming... Once they are gone, that is the end. When they exit the shop, a frightened Marie claims to have seen books on witchcraft and voodoo on Montola's shelves. Later that week, Thirteen and Marie take in a movie, but one of the newsreels causes Marie to scream. It details the accidental death of film director Maxim Brandt a figure of whom they'd seen Montola sculpting days before. Thirteen and Marie go immediately to Montola's shop at night. They break in, and sure enough, they find a twisted, crushed figure of Maxim Brandt, who had died accidentally, falling from a great height. The pair sneak further into the shop, pull back a curtain to reveal Montoya toying by candlelight with another wax figure, one of Dr. Thirteen himself. Montola whirls with a sharp pin at little Terry's shoulder and threatens to call the police on Big Terry and Marie. Dr. Thirteen calls Montola's bluff, saying he didn't think the police would be called considering what's happened to the real-life counterparts to Montola's last few wax creations. Montola stands firm, though, almost imperceptibly grabbing Dr. Thirteen by the shoulder. Montola claims that's nothing but a coincidence, and honestly, what evidence does Dr. Thirteen have? Later that evening, Thirteen notices a wound on his left shoulder, the same shoulder Montola had been pressing on the Dr. Thirteen doll with that pin. Obviously not noticing the light grip Montola gave the real Terry's shoulder, Dr. Thirteen's strong disbelief may be starting to waver. He may actually be starting to fall for this voodoo stuff. Unable to rest and remembering Montola still had the little Terry doll, he rushes back to the shop. When he gets there, though, he sees another famous movie star, Howard Doré, enter the shop, and Doré leaves with a doll of himself. And then Terry sees Montola counting a huge wad of cash. Rather than entering the shop at that time, Dr. Thirteen decides to confront Doré at his home. 
where he learns that a paranoid Doré has allowed himself to be blackmailed due to the recent rash of killings and accidental deaths. Doré learned that there was a doll in his image at Montola's shop, and the sculptor refused to sell it to him for less than $10,000. Dr. Thirteen convinces Doré to accompany him back to the shop to demand a refund. Once there, Montola grabs the doll from Doré's hands and threatens it with a needle, beginning to reveal his true colors. But Dr. Thirteen does him one better and actually forces his hand, the pin now piercing the Doré doll's chest. At this action, the real Doré cries out and crumples to the floor. Dr. Thirteen points an accusatory finger at Montola, claiming that he is responsible for all the recent deaths. But this implication causes Montola to crumple. He spills all his beans. He had nothing to do with the deaths of Velma Reed, Senator Tolles, or Maxim Brent, but he had early knowledge of them due to his avid interest in the police radio. Opportunistically, and quite quickly I might add, he crafted the dolls and had accomplices hide them with pins or pin wounds, all in the hopes that they would might be found, believed to be some sort of black magic spellcasting, and coerce paranoid Hollywood folk into forking over dough to keep their wax likenesses as safe as possible. With Montola's gut spilled, Doré gets up. His collapse was just a ruse cooked up with Dr. Thirteen to get just this kind of confession. Montola admits to scratching Terry's shoulder with a poison pin the previous day in hopes the wound would put Dr. Thirteen further off the scent. But with the case of the Dolls of Doom successfully debunked, Dr. Thirteen is free to return to his movie set, where Marie presents him with the only statuette he'll ever earn in Hollywood, his wax likeness as sculpted by the Doll Man. <clears throat> I mean, the Puppet Master. <clears throat> I mean, Amos Montola. Boy, this seemed like a lot of recap for an eight-page story. They really packed a lot of plot into a small page count in the early 50s. Some of the twists and turns here were a little hard to swallow. Montola's ability to plant wax dolls so quickly just where they needed to be found, especially that first one. When Dr. Thirteen and Marie first roll up to that party at Zandu, I didn't mention it before, but we're told it took one hour to drive from the estate entrance to the house. To think Montola could hear of Velma Reed's murder on the police radio, craft the doll, and get it over there to be discovered at the correct moment You've got to suspend a lot of disbelief in a story where the lead character's life mission is the truth. But this story was still a lot of fun and had a lot of the typical cues found in these early Dr. Thirteen adventures. The cute mystery. I know strange to use that word with so much death abound, but the details are all laid out for the reader. The clues are left charmingly on each page, and I find that cute. You've got a scream from Marie. She unfortunately never really has much to do beyond that in these stories. And Dr. Thirteen's momentary crisis of confidence that always seems to occur at the story's climax. He's always one panel away from accepting the strange phenomena he becomes involved in. A lot of the imagery as either drawn by Leonard Starr or included in the script was appropriately macabre. The senator with the tree branch through his neck. Yuck pierced voodoo dolls, 
Uh, and speaking of Hollywood statuettes, I believe it was about one year ago I read an announcement about a 13-family television series being in development. Uh, and this story reminds me of it, but I don't believe I've heard anything else since then. All I know was that actress Elizabeth Banks' name was attached as producer, and it was shopped to the CW. It's supposed to center on Tracy 13, Terry's daughter, introduced about 50, 60 years after the story was published. I'd love to be able to watch a weekly show featuring Tracy and her doting, doubting dad, so I hope something eventually comes of that. Alright, next up, we'll have a look at another ghost-breaker thriller as Dr. 13 investigates the Suicide Tower. Okay, the lead feature in Star Spangled Comics number 124 is the Dr. 13 story Suicide Tower. Lovely. And it's under one of my favorite Ghostbreaker covers. 13 stands hesitatingly at the top of a stone wall overlooking a sparse landscape under a pitch black sky, while two ghostly beauties beckon him off, saying, Yes, jump, Dr. 13. Death is so sweet. Never mind that this is a misleading cover in a way. That scene does not occur in the story in exactly that way. It's still a damn fine illustration that I will continue to assume is by Leonard Starr. The story finds Terence and Marie, world travelers, in Mexico to investigate a mysterious Aztec monument called the Suicide Tower. This 15th century structure has a habit of attracting visitors to its top visitors who end up hurling themselves to their deaths. When Terence and Marie arrive, they see a sign posted stating, in English, that due to the string of bizarre accidents and now believed to be cursed, the tower has been permanently closed. Near the tower's entrance, they encounter a journalist, Joe Martinez, and his cameraman. Martinez is there on behalf of his newspaper and is intent on doing kind of work that would make Dr. 13 proud. He plans to spend the night at the top of the tower disproving the curse. 13, Marie, and Juan, the photographer, wait below while Martinez makes his way through the tower's innards. But when they see him emerge at the top, the journalist has a strange look on his face. Fearing what's about to happen next, the trio leap into action. Juan just manages to cross the threshold of the tower's entrance before they realize it's too late. And Martinez jumps, and as they say, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the sudden stop at the bottom. 
Realizing that some background information might help in their investigation, Dr. 13 reads about the tower's history in a Mexico City library. And as we all know, all the real work gets done in the library. Ordered built in 1522 by Spanish conquistadors as an emblem of superiority over the indigenous peoples, all the labor was squeezed by force out of those conquered people. One of the laborers, Oaxa, near the tower's completion, voiced a curse that the tower shall not be a symbol of Spanish strength, but of their weakness. From that day forward, the guilt of every conquistador who climbs the tower caused them to hurl themselves to their doom. And sure enough, as soon as the tower was completed, the first conquistador to climb to the top plunged to his muerte and fulfilled for the first time the curse of Oaxa. Marie interrupts Terry's study with news that at that moment there's another potential jumper at the top of the tower. They rush to the scene and find a carnival-like atmosphere where a crowd has gathered, authorities with probing spotlights pointed at the top of the tower, rubberneckers, and preposterously, Hollywood starlet Carol Deeds, who claims not to believe in the curse of Oaxa and is prepared to talk down the gringo at the top of the monument, Oklahoma oil field laborer Pete Clay. The police try to dissuade Ms. Deeds from entering the tower, as does Dr. 13, who suddenly has some competition here as the contrarian first from journalist Martinez and now Ms. Deeds. 13 has to admit that though he's usually the first one to explain away strange situations, he hasn't quite cracked this one yet and advises caution under the present circumstances. But Ms. Reed isn't having it. She rushes toward the threshold, Dr. 13 right behind her. But Marie's scream, there it is, tells them it's too late. Pete Clay takes a swan dive from the suicide tower. Carol Reed is reduced to hysterics. She now believes in the curse of Waha, as this is not what she had planned. What? Back at Reed's hotel, she explains to Terry and Marie that she had paid Pete Clay $1,000 to climb to the top of the tower, and she was to roll up and save him. It was a crummy publicity stunt gone wrong. So wrong. And now this is just too much for Dr. 13. He's now champing at the bit to solve this mystery, to get to the bottom of the curse of Waha. And so he resolves to climb to the top of the tower himself. Despite Marie's protestations, Dr. 13 enters the tower where he sees, as he climbs higher and higher, the ceremonial carvings that adorn the walls, scenes depicting human sacrifice, and one carving at the very top showing a man in seeming bliss jumping from the tower. Terry claims that this scene could elicit a strange feeling in each tower climber, could almost make death seem attractive. And as he steps outside at that great height, he finds himself mesmerized by the view of a slow-moving river encircling the tower's grounds. He admits to himself he can actually feel the pull, can feel himself being drawn to the abyss. The sight of Marie, far below, running toward the tower's entrance, begins to bring him out of it, 
and through force of will he manages to ignite his cigarette lighter, the pain of the flame on his skin bringing him all the way back to full alert. As soon as Marie crosses the threshold, however, Terry experiences the mechanical secret of the suicide tower. The ledge beneath him gives way. But acting quickly, he manages to hang on. He then slowly makes his way down outside of the tower's surface. And when he reaches the bottom, he can mansplain all the details to Marie. Though commanded to participate in the construction of the tower, Oaha and others were responsible for the design. And specifically, they oriented the top of the tower to face the hypnotic power of the lazy river. Not trusting that to be a foolproof way of disposing of all who climbed to the top, a movable ledge was added which would give way when activated from below. When a second person stepped on the threshold, a complex set of levers would cause the ledge to swing away, dooming the person at the top, though it would appear that the victim had jumped. So it was an added unfortunate detail in Noaha's curse that, in effect, Joe Martinez's photographer and Carol Reed were unwittingly responsible for killing the last two victims of the tower. And Marie had narrowly missed killing Dr. Thirteen just by stepping into the tower. And in the last panel of the story, Thirteen plans to fix everything with his professional recommendations that structural changes be made at the base of the tower and that trees are planted that will one day, block the view of the river from the top. Here we have another supernatural situation debunked by Professor Trece. So like the Dolls of Doom, we get a lot going on in eight pages. This wasn't as plot-heavy as the previous story, but between the international travel, the flashback history lesson, and the appearance of another tragic movie starlet, which the writer of both stories seem to be a little preoccupied with. It's a dense eight pages. And of course we have the suicide tower. Well, reading this, I couldn't help but think what a great action figure playset this would have made. You could press a little button on the bottom, and that would activate a spring, which would flip a figure off the top. Of course, you'd have to do something about that name. Suicide isn't exactly the most marketable word. Call it maybe the Dr. 13 Aztec Action Tower or something. The artwork in both stories I think is pretty fantastic. I considered Leonard Starr an above-average illustrator in any age, uh, but I think his drawing looks exceptional within the landscape of the sunset of the Golden Age. Neither of these stories has ever been reprinted in any legitimate format, so I'll be sure to reproduce some panels from these stories and the covers, which are both knockouts despite the creases and tears you'll see in my copies. Well, yeah, check out those images at this show's accompanying blog, itgblogcast.blogspot.com. On the off chance you're listening to it the day it comes out, first, thank you for spending the last 25-30 minutes with me and Dr. 13. And have fun and stay safe if you're celebrating Halloween with a little trick-or-treating. Hope the treats are good and the dental checkups are clean. Take care.